Welcome, business class listeners, to another episode of Wisco Weekly. On today's episode, Doug Formby is our guest. Doug Formby serves as the general manager at Toyota Marin. He started early in the car business working a summer job his senior year of college at a Mazda Kia dealership in Cincinnati, Ohio. That taste of the car business eventually led him to pursue a management and training program with Toyota. After putting in the time learning many different facets of the supply, distribution, and retail chains of Toyota Motor Company, Doug transferred over to the dealership environment. And just last year in 2020, Doug was appointed as general manager of Toyota Marin. In this episode, you will get a glimpse of Doug's life from when he was a student athlete at UC Santa Barbara to working in the car business. With the recent Supreme Court ruling that allows college student athletes to earn unlimited educationally related benefits, this is a great opportunity for the automotive space at large to capitalize on a huge influencer base. And if you want to learn more on how to leverage student athletes as influencers for your business, consider becoming a paid subscriber on Apple Podcasts where you will receive bonus episodes of the show. I actually recently uploaded an episode that shares with you my 10 years of experience working in college athletics and some of the things that I did for college student athletes. So this is an episode that's a little bit near and dear to my heart. You can visit the Apple Podcast app and become a paid subscriber for only $8 a month. Now, let's get into the episode to hear more about student athlete life and car business life with Mr. Doug Formby. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Doug Formby. General Manager of Toyota Marin. Shout out to Amit Chandarana for hooking up the introduction between Doug and I. Doug, there's a lot of things I want to get to on this episode that I think are very niche uh, to your background, my background, and I'm hoping then we can just have a very good conversation um, hearing your life and how you got started in the automotive business, the car business, and kind of, you know, what, let's reverse engineer your life till, till college. And Doug, let me add this too. I think this is something that I think I mentioned to you a little bit, but you know, you and I, in a sense, are a little bit of arch rivals. You having gone to UC Santa Barbara, I have went to UC Irvine. I did not play sports. You did. You swam. I though was working in the athletic department, and I often traveled with the team. I certainly have an affinity towards UC Santa Barbara and the Phantom of the Dome. I remember seeing that guy often. Very very funny mascot guy that you guys have, aside from the gaucho, but. Doug, I want to kind of start with your days back as a student athlete. You know, you were a swimmer at UC Santa Barbara. Tell me about your four years swimming at UC Santa Barbara. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, Dennis. And we have a little more in common. I actually grew up in Irvine, California. So when you shared that, I was like, that's, that's pretty right. cool. So uh, then I went up the road to Santa Barbara and I was blessed to have swam there for four years and met some lifelong friends. I mean, it was an amazing experience. I mean, the location of UC Santa Barbara is great, but then being a student athlete was uh, just awarded its own 
benefits with just being plugged right in with a group of swimmers. There were 30 males, 30 females on the team. So swimming's unique in that this, the, the men and the women both swim together. So it's almost like a fraternity and a sorority together. So you eat your meals together. You have morning workout Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 5.30 a.m. Then you have afternoon workout every single day, either 1.30 to 3.30 or 3 to 5. And then, um, you know, you eat dinner together, you have practice on Saturday morning. So really it's a six day a week event. Um, but then you also spend all your time outside the pool, hanging out, getting together, um, eating, drinking parties. I mean, it was a lot of fun. Ooh, parties in Santa Barbara. I don't know if you want to go down that route. Maybe you'll take me down there at, maybe you won't, but let me, let me ask you this though, as back in the days of, of student athlete life. So so you kind of gave me like a daily slash weekly regimen. Give me a length of, you know, how much time during the year was spent living that life. Yeah. So we would get to college um, about three weeks before the system started at UC Santa Barbara. It's a quarter system. So it usually starts around September 20th. So we would get there for training camp at the beginning of September, right around Labor Day. In the first three weeks, there would be no other students on campus. So you just hung out with your team. Um, and you just worked out a ton, just getting back into shape, a lot of aerobic sets and everything for, for swimming, just to get your uh, aerobic baseline in check. And then you would kind of ramp up throughout the season and, you know, the end of September to October, November, December, you'd go home for Thanksgiving, go home for Christmas, and then you come back and in January, you hit the training really hard. Every uh, January 1st, we would do 100 100s, which is a very challenging swim set. It's 10,000 yards of just monotonous uh, swimming. We did that every year. And then uh, then you would taper down for conference finals. And those were usually mid to late February. And then the individuals who made the NC2A um, swim meet, they would go in, in March. And that was kind of it. Then you would have about 60 days of kind of haphazard training, kind of light, a little bit here and there. And then you'd go home for the summer at the beginning of June. So obviously describing that, which uh, I mean, I, I, I know that's life fairly intimately as a third party, having bore witness to this working in the athletic department. I mean, this is certainly a full-time gig. I think that's very commonly known for student athletes. It's like they are both a full-time student and they are a full-time athlete. Um, you know, w- did you have time to work professionally or how did you, how, how did you, better your better yourself professionally during that time during your four years so that's a that's really a great question so i think that one of the uh one of the biggest challenges as a student athlete is finding a way to bridge the the bridge getting into business or finding some sort of professional career because there's really no time for that i just knew i wanted to be in business i like being around people i wanted to be able to make money um, but there was no time to have a job outside of, you know, during the summer, I was a bus boy downtown at Brophy Brothers in Santa Barbara. But other than that, I mean, the, I, I was really a little bit at a loss for what I was going to do to get some professional experience. So I stayed in Santa Barbara each summer, except going into my senior year, my family had actually moved back from Southern California. They moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. And I flew out there, lived there for 10 weeks, and I sold cars with my uncle at a Mazda and Kia dealership. So I was 21 years old, didn't know what I was doing, but just went into a car dealership and sold cars. And I liked it, it was fun, the energy was great. And that was kind of my first taste of, of automotive. And then I went back and finished my my senior year. And uh, then coming out of that, I you know went down a different path. So I can at, share At that more. Cincinnati Mazda store, were there other student athletes uh, that were in, involved in that dealership? No, there weren't. There were a few, there were a few young men that were in their early to mid twenties. That was kind of the youngest there. And then I was 21. So I was really the youngest, the youngest person working there. 
And how did you fare against the Cincinnati Mazda competition? It was a different world. Let's just say that. Uh, growing <laughs> up in Southern California, I mean, I didn't know the extent to which credit mattered <laughs> or having good credit, good income. Uh, the incomes out there are much lower than in California. Credit scores, I mean, I learned, uh, you know, with desking deals and trying to make a car deal, I learned that, you know, if you've checked your credit 25 times in the past two weeks, the banks don't want to give you a loan. So, um, I, I really learned a lot and I was not a top salesperson by any means. I was just trying to figure it out, uh, during that time. It was more of an educational experience for me than it was me just going out and being a total killer on the sales floor. I mean, so I, I could understand the, the income side that it's not as high as what it would be in Southern California or central California. Um, However, on the credit side, the credit side in at Cincinnati, Ohio, at that time was also the the, the folks didn't have as good credit out there at that yeah, time. At least it was a Mazda and Kia dealership that I was working at, and yeah, the, the type of credit that we were getting, people buying those cars or the used cars, you know, very low cost. I mean, the first vehicle I ever sold was a purple Pontiac that had TMU, which means true mileage unknown. I mean, it was an odometer rollback that had a discrepancy. I mean, I'm surprised the bank would even give them a loan. Um, you know, but I had I had someone come in and say they want to buy a car and I'm all excited to sell them one. And my uncle's laughing at me because he's like, man, if they're that happy to buy a car, they don't have the credit to get one. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh, oh so I learned that life lesson real quick. I mean, that's one of those moments I, I feel both torn and also like, you know, respectful, the fact that, okay, they're able to afford a car, or I guess they're able to get a car to hopefully improve their situation. But at the same time, it's rather sad that like, that's what they had to resort to in order to to make ends meet. Yeah. And a lot of times they want more car than they can afford. And that's something I still see in my business today. That's uh, pretty common. It's the, the American dream, you know, wanting to <laughs> spend more than you have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so so tell me more about your student athlete days. So so you got into involved in the car business right before your senior year, and then you finished up swimming. And what happened after that with regards to let's say the athletic side of you? Did you stop swimming altogether? No, I actually still swim. The past three days, I'm, I mean, I swam six thousand yards on the Fourth of July. Yesterday, I swam thirty five hundred yards. This morning, I swam thirty nine hundred. So I still swim actively. I enjoy it. I was never one of those people that that swam and then quit. You see a lot of people that do that. They swim and forever, and then they just stop swimming forever once they are done with you know competing. I didn't do that. So I continued swimming. Um, I did CrossFit for a few years while I wasn't swimming. Then I kind of hurt my back. So when I turned 30 years old, I had blown out my back doing CrossFit and I started swimming again. And now I'm 36. I've been swimming four to five days a week since I turned 30. And and what was your sport uh, event in college that you were competing in? The, the 50 free, the 100 free and the 100 backstroke. So sprint okay. sprint events, not mid distance or distance. And and so what is your time now in a 100 meter uh, sprint versus what it was your, your oh, best man. time. Oh man, I'm probably, I'm pro I mean, if I was within three seconds, I'd be pretty happy. You know, back in college, I was doing 46. If I could do a 49 right now, that'd be pretty good. I know I could do a 51 or 52. So <laughs> what would you say if you knew nothing about a person other than their hundred meter time was a little over two minutes, what would you say about that person? Um, uh, I would say they're probably not a swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> They've never swam competitively before. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is true. I have not swam competitively. Oh. <laughs> 
I didn't even know he didn't set me up. Uh, uh, I mean, no, I, 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 I love swimming right now. As a matter of fact, I'm a late bloomer to the swimming uh, sport. But since I picked it up probably about 10, 12 years ago, when I started doing triathlons, like swimming is the one mm-hmm. sport that has continued to stay with me ever since I picked it up. I mean, Doug, I was awful. The first time I went in a pool to swim with the triathlon team, I mean, trying to swim just like 25 meters, man, it took me at least a minute and a half. I mean, I just struggled, but I got better. I practiced. I mean, so even till this day, I enjoy swimming just for the workout. It's, it's, you know, low impact on the body. Um, Absolutely. Yep. Now, so, okay. So now you have, uh, you, so you still swim. So you got into the car business, you worked at Toyota at the corporate offices until you started working at the dealership. Uh, Tell me about your kind of like compare and contrast your experiences working in the car business to your student athlete days. Yeah, that's great. So I think when I worked, when I went to work for a Toyota corporate, um, I, I worked for ADP, the payroll company for one year, right after I graduated, I got a sales job. It was outside sales. And that was, that was interesting, but I, I learned, I'm like, I don't really want to be an outside salesperson going and calling on businesses. So I got signed up to a interview with Toyota at the management training program at corporate. So it's where they put you through a bunch of rotations. I mean, I was answering the phones at the 800 call center. Was this in calling. Torrance or Irvine? Torrance. This Torrance. is in Torrance. Yep. At the national headquarters at the time, they've since moved to Plano, but I was answering the phone for the 800 number. Hello, thank you for calling Toyota. This is Doug. How can I help you? 35 calls a day, just pounding it out. They rotated me through a bunch of different um, departments, positions. So I, I was there for nine years, three months, and I had 18 different roles with the company. So it was super dynamic. Every day was different. I learned a lot. I you know progressed through different you know various roles, working with dealers directly, then doing strategic planning and ordering cars for the Northern California market, the incentives for the Northern California market. And then I, I worked directly with the dealers in the franchise agreement with the dealers and corporate. So it's kind of like a subway, if you think about it. You know, some guy owns the subway and it's a franchise of subway. Well, he has six employees, you know, a dealership, you got 150, but you are a franchise that gets fed cars by the manufacturer. And there's only so many of them, there's franchise law. So I worked on the corporate side with those agreements <clears throat> And I actually came to work for one of my dealers. So I left the corporate side and went the more entrepreneurial route. Um, so I worked at a dealership in the, as a sales manager for two and a half years. And then uh, when COVID started, I actually got the opportunity to become a general manager. So now I'm in charge of service parts, sales, um, the finance office, the business office, the entire dealership. So I have 135 employees here. And uh, the, the way I can relate it to athletics and student athlete days, I mean, every day, Every day is different. You eat what you kill. You can have a great day. Like we can sell, you know, 14 cars and make a ton of profit. And it's an awesome day. Or you can have a horrible day. You sell three cars. You don't know what's wrong. You still went out there and tried your hardest, but it didn't work out. So you kind of, you, you live and die by what you're doing today, but you can always just put in the work and the results will follow. So I think that one of the biggest things is the, uh, you know, as a student athlete, you're an individual contributor. You, you, especially in swimming, you have your own times, you're part of a team. Well, in business, as as a salesperson, you're an individual contributor, but as a manager, you're more of like a position coach. Then as a general manager, you're kind of like a head coach, coaching these people. And your own success is predicated on the success of your people. So if you can have your people be more successful, 
that will ultimately make you more successful. And if you do it for the right reason, because you care about people and you want them to have a good life, then they'll be successful and you'll end up successful. So I just, I love it. So I, I can't even, I mean, I'm just so grateful that I ended up in a position like this where I enjoy my work so much. Did, did you coach prior to at all? I mean, I imagine sometime in college, you might have to, didn't some like summer coaching for-, for I did camp. some coaching in high school for like this, the, the summer league swimming. I was not a great coach by any means or anything like that. Um, no, but, but I always- have had an affinity for people and, um, you know, just leading people's a really rewarding experience. Um, I enjoy just coaching and developing people because that's what I craved when I was coming up through the system and I didn't always get it. So to the extent that I didn't get that, I try to give that to my people. That's, I, that's what I want to do. I want to be like the person that I may not have had coming through the system. That's good. Kudos. Amen. Uh, going back to working uh, on the corporate side, when you were involved in the franchise and um, automaker agreements and, and franchise law, I, I'm curious to know a little bit more about that side of things. I mean, so I'm I'm fairly familiar now with franchise law and, and not necessarily from the legal aspect, but definitely from the philosophical side, from the uh, societal aspects of franchise laws. I, I do think that franchise laws are actually outdated right now when you do think about the dealer and automaker relationship. Um, you know, when you were working on this side, like, tell me, tell me what you were thinking about when you were working with franchise law. You know, I, I still think that franchise, especially with automotive, it, it is the best and most efficient way to distribute and sell automobiles because I know that working at Toyota if we had the sole right of selling the car, we weren't experts at selling cars to consumers. We were experts at distributing cars to dealers who sell them to consumers. So on the manufacturer side, they have, they have a great system that's tried and true the way that they give product to dealers, which I learned while I was there and I've used to my advantage now that I'm on this side of the business. Um, but it's critically important that you have people that are fully focused. We are focused on retailing cars to consumers. So you pull their credit, you market, you leverage vendor relationships to get more internet presence, to get more people to come in so that when you talk to them, you can provide a good experience and sell them a car. At, at the corporate side, they're focused on strategy of you know distributing the cars to the dealers. They're not focused on getting the cars sold to consumers. So I still think that with automotive franchises is really necessary where, you know, Tesla may have debunked it a little bit, but that's somewhat of an anomaly. Other, otherwise, I think that especially with servicing the vehicles and the warranty work, it's a pretty efficient system and means of distribution. The the franchise business model is certainly, you know, a, a very time-tested model that is not going away ever. Part of that is because at the time when automakers were getting to this of, you know, production and distribution, it was a whole nother beast to start to introduce the retail process in which any manufacturer could have never grown as big as they are today without the franchise system, without retail being able to sell those cars. I think where it starts to get a little bit outdated though now is when you are starting to see this sharing economy take place. And then the sharing economy, automakers want to get more directly involved in that. Mm -hmm. However, they are prevented by doing so due to franchise law. I think of this in the same way I think about uh, the, the uh, what is it, the, the 
FCC section, I've spoken about this before, that it regulates internet companies, mm-hmm. right? So the, in regulating internet companies in a sense of, well, internet companies, you are protected from any, um, you know, from any activity that happens on your site as a result of a user. So there, a lot of the tech, tech companies were, were indemnified from it. But now as you see more users using the system and nearly abusing it, these tech tech companies act as more publishers as opposed to a platform. Does this ring a bell to you at all? Are you familiar with, with this? I'm not really familiar with that. Okay. I do think that one thing I could share with what you just said about, you know, the, the man, the manufacturers getting involved with the sharing economy. I think it's easy to say right now, if, if anyone listening has, has recently purchased a car, gone to sell their car, knows someone who's bought a car. If you've turned on the news and read about cars, seeing cars, the, the values are astronomical levels due to the chip shortage in the industry. So used car prices are through the roof. Um, I was just texting my best friend before this podcast and he's trying to get out of his Lexus and get either an Escalade or a Navigator. And he's like, man, I just talked to the Escalade dealer and he said, it's a $5,000 over MSRP, no haggling period. If I don't want it, good luck. And I'm like, that's what it is, man. So I think in these times, it's easy for the, the manufacturers to think, we could do this, you know, they're just buying these cars, you know, they're selling themselves. There's no real need for salesmanship or a retail outlet to do it for us. But I think that where that's only true to the extent where demand outpaces supply, and that's the the current situation that we're in economically with the car market. But what happens is when they build too many cars and they need someone to sell them, they need motivated people to find a way to be entrepreneurial and sell those cars at a compressed margin, but still remain profitable so they can still sell more cars. So it's easy to say right now, anybody could sell a car. It's it's quite simple. I mean, we have way more, we had 32 customers here yesterday to buy cars and we don't have enough cars. So we only sold 12, but I mean, 32 customers coming in, that's a lot of people wanting to buy a car when we don't have them. So I can see where the manufacturers would want to get in on that right now, but it's uh, in the long run, I don't believe it will work. Yeah, I mean, you you definitely bring an interesting point up. You have these ebbs and flows, right? And so right now with tight supply and high demand, then yeah, you you, you kind of don't need the automakers as much. But this this is odd times right now when there was a lot of demand, when the automakers were putting pressure on the franchise system to sell X amount of cars per month to make sure that bonuses were hits because that's how stories get paid. I mean, uh, man, I'll tell you what, uh, I, I'm sure you know Rhett Reichert. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I had him on the show and and I he's the first person I was able to get some sort of like emotional candid response when it came to the stair step program and just, you know, I hear about these conversations already like on the side, but it's the first time I was able to speak to someone who kind of really like gave me the 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 sense of the how terrible, how terrible that system is. I mean, he he's he's not a he's not afraid to 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 share how terrible that program is. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate that I've been with Toyota forever and they quit doing that in the 1990s, but I'm very familiar. And the dealers that I used to call on when I was a factory rep that owned Volkswagen stores, I mean, they curse their name that or Nissan that, you know, you'd have this stair step. And if you basically factor in the 500 bucks a car that you're going to get if you hit your bonus, you discount the cars all month long. But if you fall short and you sold 200 of them, I mean, you're out 100 Gs. I mean, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, so then it then it you know breeds all sorts of fraudulent RDR activity and whatnot. So it's 
it's it's no bueno. I mean, I I presume that you may have a a bullish mindset that demand will not return to its pre-COVID levels. That at, it'll kind of more stabilize, you know, maybe at eighteen million, nineteen million. Yeah, I would think it's going to come down from there. I don't think. I don't see how it could continue to remain that high. I mean, I think the 17 million SAR, I mean, 16 even coming down in the next year or two, I think that's totally in the cards. And while, you know, we've had record profits on the retail side, hence why, you know, the manufacturers are probably thinking, hey, I would love to, you know, we could sell the cars, you know, the record profits, but that's totally due to the demand and the low supply. So the value of each commodity is up 200, 300%. So when your dealership is structured to make very little money on the front end of a car and still be profitable, when you add a massive amount of profitability and gross profit to the car, it's just funny money. So while we're printing the cash, it's great, but I am not so naive to think it's not going to end at some point. So I'm a little bit more bearish on how long this thing's going to last. And I'm a little bit more, um, I'm I'm being real agile with with the used car market and even with new car pricing and not trying to hold on too long, knowing that you know, the prices need to come down at some point, And I'd rather be ahead of that curve than behind it. Actually, so this is kind of a good uh, little digression here, because uh, so is, I, I'm curious how you think about this then, because I would agree that with all of the demand that consumers uh, are paying towards new car prices, essentially sticker or even more, that will drive up used car pricing among other things that's driven, you know, used car pricing is up. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's obviously many other things, but if we do fast forward two years from now, three years from now, I mean, the cost of cars is only going to go up maybe incrementally, but it'll still go up. Hence we have some inflation going on at some point it will correct itself. How do you think about trying to ensure that two years down the road, that your costs are still manageable, knowing the fact that, again, cars are going to go up a little bit more, but they're not going to be as good as they are now. That's a great question. And I think that when when you when you structure, a, the, the way a dealership is structured, it's kind of like a football hang, team. Sorry. Hang on one sec. There's some beeping. Oh, here we go. Yeah, it's a tow truck. Towing in an FJ Cruiser. There we to- go. Towing in or to Well. Towing in, I think. Yeah. 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 Uh oh, maybe we should put a bid on that one. I'd like to buy that. We'll get it, we'll get it running in no time. <laughs> that's that's an enthusiast car. That's a good car. Okay, so Doug, tell me about how you are trying to forecast in your business for when times aren't as good, when the money per unit is not as high, and inevitably it's those margins shrink a bit. And let's let's presume in this you know, economic example that this is going to be two and a half, three years down the road. Mm-hmm. What are, how do you look at things now in order to, again, act towards that distant future? It's a great question. And I think about it all the time. So one, one great benefit of COVID was that it allowed people to kind of reassess the size and structure and the needs of each, each position, you know, at a dealership. And you had people that wanted to exit the workforce. Some of them wanted to collect benefits, you know, it definitely impacted the way that auto dealers kind of structured themselves. So what we found ourselves doing, um, I took over this dealership on May 1st of last year. So it was dead in the middle of COVID. And we we had too many employees coming into COVID. So 
Um, we kind of let some attrition work through that. We didn't do a mass layoff or anything. Um, we actually kept everybody employed and we paid them through the PVP loan, which was beneficial to all of our employees. So we didn't lay anybody off. Um, but as people left, we right-sized the business to the point where you know we were doing more with less, which is an efficient way to run a business. Um, but then as we started to see the post-pandemic boom happen, we're now adding jobs back but I'm really cognizant of how much money that's going to cost in the long run as these gross profit margins per unit stabilize. Um, because you could be right back where you started selling twice as many cars, making you know one fifth of the profit. So it's important that you can look at everything at a dealership by a percentage. It's like running a football team. It's like the NFL and they have salary caps. Each position has a salary cap. Tom Brady can make 20 million, but the right guard can't. So. Each position in a dealership has their, their niche of how much percentage of the profit they can take. And if you set that up appropriately, then you'll be successful whether you're selling a ton of volume or lower volume, whether you're selling at large profit margins or really modest profit margins. So I, I think that our dealership has a really good structure um, and foundation with the way with our that our business model set up. So I think we'll be ready to kind of rage into the new um, the, the new world. But I think that the three ways that a business can make money are to lower expenses, to increase gross profit margin, or to increase sales. And during this crazy inventory time, the only thing we've been able to control is to lower expenses or increase the gross margin. And we've done both of those. The one thing we haven't been able to do is to increase top line sales because we can't get the inventory. So my entire focus is as we come out of this thing, I want to increase my top line sales. So I'm going to shift away from expense reduction and gross per copy over to just growing the total sales and then try to retain some of the gross margin that we've been able to build up over the past nine months with the crazy pandemic shortage. So I think we're, the automotive business is still in for a, a good run of another you know, six months to a year of really good profits. And then beyond that, I think that owner operators, dealer principals, general managers, they're going to be looking at the business a little bit differently than they used to with regard to their profit expectation. And I think that'll help all dealerships. You know, there's almost a tiny bit of like, of, of like joy I sensed inside you as you, as you talked about this, as if like, this was the best part now of being a general manager, as if like, yeah. again, you are running the team, you got salary caps, you got, you know, you got to shift around mm -hmm. who your teams are, your players, reset the defense, reset the offense. Like, am I right? Am I, am I hearing it correct? Yes. It, that's why I, I love what I do. It, it's amazing. So the things that whatever's happening right now, as I'm here talking with you, the team is out there servicing cars. You just heard an FJ Cruiser getting towed in, okay? So they're out there servicing cars, selling cars, working on cars, but the success of what they're doing is all kind of predicated on the system and structure that you have set up. It's why Bill Belichick wins games regardless of who his players are. He has a system. So if you can set up your dealership with a system that's favorable and that you know is a win-win for your employees, your customers, and for the actual profit structure of the dealership, it, it's a home run for all. And so I just look at it every day as how can I move the chess pieces around to be as successful as possible and how can I help others be successful? And then it's just the win-win mentality is, is really the strongest you know, piece here um, in running a dealership. But I think for student athletes, for people who were, you know, who are looking for a career, looking for something to do, I don't think you would ever think retail automotive. I don't know if you would ever even think automotive. Um, but I think that between the OEMs working for an actual manufacturer or working for a vendor, one of these auto trader, true car admins, 
I mean, or the litany of, you know, data processing vendors and whatnot, the roadsters of the world or the DMSs, CDK, Reynolds. I mean, there are so many jobs tied to automotive. So I think for student athletes, especially some of the more outgoing ones that are maybe a communication major, they don't know what they want to do, maybe want to get into sales. Automotive is an excellent industry to be in, and it's incredibly dynamic and vibrant. And especially on the retail side, you would never... You would never really think it, um, you know, you go to college and you're thinking, hey, I'm going to get a job when I graduate. You wouldn't think I'm going to go work at a car dealership. But I can tell you, this is the most fun I've ever had working at a car dealership. Every day is different. The energy, the people, the, you know, the win or lose mentality, the strategy. So it's, uh, it's, it's really phenomenal. And you can sense in my joy that I'm talking to you about it. Like, I'm just excited to hit the next challenge, attack it and try and get better every day. All right. So I, I, I want to go back to two things. I'm going to ask you this, but I'm going to ask you it later because you had mentioned a couple of things that I think are going to be very interesting to hear from your perspective. One is I'd like to, I'd like for you to share with us a little bit more about your, I'm going to call it coaching philosophy, right? Your GM management style uh, and some of the tips that you do every day that you teach your employees and whatnot that breeds this environment that you're in. Yeah. So we'll get to that later. So think about that one. The second thing is actually, I do want, uh, you to share a little bit more about even this student athlete recruitment about getting involved. Obviously you took the route of uh, doing the management and training program with Toyota, maybe share a little bit more about some different avenues for student athletes to get in the car business. But again, that's later. Okay. All right. Yeah. We're going to talk about something a little bit different, but still related to student athletes. And I think this kind of goes along the lines of, again, you playing GM of a football team, GM of a baseball team, so the U.S. Supreme Court recently ruled prior to July 1st, although it went into July, in effect July 1st, that student athletes are allowed to earn unlimited educationally related benefits. Now, as a quick background, listeners, I, having worked in the college athletic space, there was a cap to which student athletes could earn benefits after they received their scholarship. And if they didn't receive a scholarship, it didn't matter. They were still capped out those benefits. What are example of benefits? Some of the benefits could be as simple as a donor or a sponsor taking that athlete out for lunch. If that was going to occur, you had to get permission. You had to get signed off. All this different paperwork and bureaucracy that needed to be put in place because that was deemed a benefit. Of course, you hear some more of the egregious benefits that could happen to you know a lot of football players and basketball players where somehow a, a mother or a father or an uncle or a grandfather gets a new car or gets a, a new house. And somehow they, you know, the, the team, the, the university did that as a way to recruit or to give a benefit to that particular student athlete. Those are the more egregious examples. And those are definitely one of the reasons why that particular policy was in place before. Now, student athletes can earn unlimited educationally related benefits. Doug, what are your thoughts on this new um, ruling by the Supreme Court? Well, I'm looking at it from a couple of different angles. When I first read about it, I mean, I've been a proponent of that forever. I don't think that these guys, especially you think of the big pro, high profile football players that have a limited lifespan, you're a running back, your knees may go out, you know, in your mid twenties, their prime time is between 18 and 21 when they're playing college football and just dominating. There's no reason that their, their family should have to struggle in poverty or that they can't afford a car or to go to a meal 
like you're saying. And I think that the open market will kind of bear this out to the extent to which the market is willing to pay them to represent their products and services. So I think that on the other end, you know, operating a business, I'm thinking of it like, hmm, are there any, you know, baseball players nearby? Cal Berkeley's 20 minutes away from here. You know, maybe I could get plugged up with a couple of those guys, put them in a car, let them talk about Toyota Marin, you know, maybe their families need something. I mean, I could leverage some of those relationships. Uh, nowadays, the influencer thing in marketing is, is huge. So actually, we have 98.1 The Breeze up here in the Bay Area. Carolyn McArdle, she's in one of our forerunners. She's been in it for four months. You know, we have her in that. She talks about Toyota Marin on the radio. Um, she has some pre-recorded stuff, but she also, you know, just talks about us in an influencer way. And I think that's huge. So thinking about it from a business perspective, I'd be willing to put something out there and for someone that's going to represent the brand. Um, so I think it's going to be a win-win for everyone. The only people who lose are the NCAA, kind of, I don't really know. I mean, I think they've just used it as their, I'm not really sure why after all these years, honestly. I think, I think there's, there's, there's two reasons why I think the NCAA fought it for so long and, and, um, you know, I, I guess only it, it was only till now that they realized that student athletes making money is permissible because of the internet, because of influencers, because of the reach that student athletes have, especially amongst their community. I mean, it's, it's almost like there's a whole new world of content creators, hence 1099 employees, you know, that's really now on the, the, the business side of things on how this gets justified is that now there's going to be that 1099 status placed on these employees or on these student athletes where they may have to start paying taxes on that stuff. That's actually another, you know, another top side topic too, that Doug, I, I kind of worry about in, in having these student athletes earn this, you know, or being able to earn uh, unlimited educationally related benefits is that at some point they're going to get stuck with a tax bill that they had no idea they had to pay. Um, but, you know, I'm curious, I'd, I'd like to spitball this here with you. I mean, the idea of Toyota Marin sponsoring an athlete, walk me through your head on like, what, what, what do you need to know in order to justify that? Like what, what, what if, an, if you had to put an agreement together, what does that look like? Well, you just mentioned the whole thing with Instagram and followers and, and all that stuff. TikTok, who knows these young people now, um, you know, I hey, would love someone. Hold on, hold on. You're just as young. You can't be saying like TikTok. I'm, as I'm if feeling like... old, man. I'm out on that stuff. I got two kids, man. I'm married, two kids. Um, so I would look at their reach. If they have a good reach and they could be posting, if they're one of these hyper posters or whatever that are always talking about, you know, just super outgoing with the social media. And if you put them in one of your cars, the, the cost to us and the, the benefit to them, a car cost, it, it's such a, a, a piece of leverage to put someone in a car that we pay interest on the car and they drive it and then they would have to pay tax on the use, like $500 a month of tax, right? But to your point, they wouldn't know that they're going to get hit with $150 bill at the end of the year per month. Um, on the tax, but, uh, but they're in a free car as far as they're concerned. And then we get some free advertising or we give them an extra 500 bucks on top of, Hey, I'll give you a car and 500 bucks. Talk about Toyota Marin. I mean, it's a good deal for all of us. I mean, if they refer anyone or if anyone sees them driving a Toyota and nowadays we got these Tacomas, Tundras, Forerunners, you could lift them, do some cool stuff with them. They're like, wow, that's really cool. And for them, they would think it's awesome. Right. I mean, if I was in college and you gave me a $60,000 lifted truck, I'd think that was sweet. 
So I think that could be a good um, a good use of our funds um, from a marketing perspective. Hold on here. You can't like just throw out if someone got a Toyota Tundra lifted and then, you know, of course, not have anyone be interested in that. I mean, of, of course, when that truck is lifted for college athletes, they're going to love something. like That's that. That's what I'm saying. So it's perfect. And then they're like, sweet, you gave it to me. And I'm like, yes, this is cheaper than I pay for like all my marketing, you know? <laughs> so. so hold on. You're saying that that is you, that is something you would seriously consider doing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not kidding. Yeah, dude, that's. I mean, look, that's pretty cool. I, I, I hope that happens. And, and again, this is where I'm kind of interested in how to explore more of this relationship between student athletes and car dealers, franchisers, the automotive space. Uh, certainly, using them as influencers. I mean, I don't know what, what anything else you could think about, and even going back to your swimming days, like. Well, one thing I'm just thinking of right now, right before I left Toyota in 2017, we were talking about the Tokyo Olympics already. So they were talking about the 2020 Toyota's gearing up, huge partnerships, all this other stuff. And back then I thought, huh, we have some Bay Area Olympians. We got like Nathan Adrian was a great swimmer, uh, Olympian. I'm like, we should like partner up with him and we should give him a car. I was thinking of it from the Toyota corporate perspective, which is more, you know, that's the regional marketing branch. So that would be like a tier two advertising versus tier one is national. It's but then you didn't want to spend some of your money. I get it. I'm with that's you. right. Exactly. <laughs> so now I'm like, okay, but now tier three though, it would make sense for us even to do it because the cost is so low compared to what, like I mentioned with the salary cap, the, the cost being so low to give someone that benefit, they'd be like, this is sweet. And I'm like, Hey, I'm only spending 500 or a thousand bucks on it where you know, otherwise we spend tens of thousands of dollars a month in marketing. So that would be, you know, if you just get one car deal every month or every two months, it pays for itself. I mean, it, it would be interesting to almost like do some sort of two month, three month campaign with getting some of the best, you know, or I shouldn't say best, but let's just say the most appropriate student athletes that you could find that, you know, that would be willing to do this. And you could run the experiment of how successful this could be, you know, how div- measured however you wanted to measure it. I mean, naturally, not just by the actual sale of a car, but, you know, other other measures as well. Definitely. And I think that, you know, what if you told them that, hey, if I'll let you have this for three or four months, if you can refer me five people over that time period to buy a car, then I'll do it for another four months. Then all of a sudden they're vested in getting you a source kicked back. I mean, it could be pretty cool. And now that we're talking about it, I, I didn't really think about that with this whole ruling until you brought it up. So my wheels are spinning now. Make it rain, baby. Make That's it right. rain. The only thing I'm thinking my controller is going to say, well, what about the insurance on it? So we got to we got to figure that out because they're a young person. So, you know, they could increase our risk and all that. So we may have to get a separate policy on that. Hmm. I guess that would be interesting. So, I mean, that that really would be the, the only cost. Because, again, like they wouldn't get the car for an entire year. We're talking maybe about one month. I mean, if I'm a student athlete and I wanted a car for, let's say, one month or let's say max of two months, would I want it more during summer or during the school year? Yeah, maybe summer. I mean, it depends when they can use it. I don't know. I mean, if you're a student at Cal Berkeley, you may not be traveling anywhere. That's what I'm thinking. Well, that's what I'm thinking, especially at least during the school year when a student athlete's busy, they, they might not be traveling around as much. So, oh, you know what? I think, I think you almost need to like, you need to get the Tundra that tows like a, a fifth wheel. And then that's like the party bus. Yeah, totally. Well, and then you put your stuff on. Yeah. I mean, and then it's just around everywhere and everyone's like, oh, there's his truck, you know, and it says Toyota Marin on it. What, I mean, do you think that you would ever think about your business 
with this kind of latest boom of van sales, um, RV sales, all of that aspect. And, you know, Toyota having these vehicles that can tow, do you ever think about cross mingling that at all? I haven't yet, but I can tell you, we have a, a shop called Racken Road down the street here in San Rafael, and they're sold out of all their stuff. And that's just accessories like Yakima racks, but, you know, totally, you know, bike racks on the back of the car and everything. That's not even the, you know, the heavy duty, you know, toys, but we've done great with accessories during this boom where there's been a truck shortage. We're throwing all sorts of cool accessories on them, TRD wheels, lift kits and stuff. And people are just buying them up. And that has nothing to do with, you know, even being a fifth wheel or something like that. So haven't thought about that, but I think the accessory thing has definitely been a added profit center for dealers, especially during the inventory shortage. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's go back to uh, talking about your GM management principles, your, your coaching philosophies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So give me an example here of one of the philosophies that you promote in your store. So as a leader, I like to lead by example. So I've always been hardworking and you just have the determination, dedication, like I'll roll my sleeves up and do the work with the people. But when I got to this position, it's kind of interesting. You go from being like the number two person in charge of say the sales department where you're doing all the work you're leading and doing to this position, you can't really do anymore because you have so many responsibilities and so many people rolling up to you that you really have to delegate and trust your people. So you kind of got to place the ownership on them and allow them to own it and allow them to be their best. So you, you know, for me, I communicate the vision of what needs to get done. I love managing by reports and analytics and facts to, to just put those in front of people and say, we need to move this target to this, which I always think is funny because it's kind of like swimming. I need to move the time from this to this. How are we going to do it? Well, we're going to train a bunch. We're going to taper the right way and prepare for the meet. And then we're going to drop time. Well, same thing here. We're going to attack the, the issue this way. We're going to get more customers by doing this. We're going to treat them like this because it's the right way to treat them. We're going to, you know, close X percentage of them and it's going to lead to this many sales and you get everybody on board with that. So, you know, I'd like to discuss that a lot and kind of, you know, I'm pretty enthusiastic when I talk about it because I'm passionate about it. And so the energy kind of goes and, you know, I'm, I'm a present leader, so I'm around and available to talk to people, um, but I'm not so overbearing that I'm, I'm not the cause of the success. They are, they are the success. I'm just the person overlooking and seeing where I think I can help them be the most successful and where I can put my time that will yield the, the greatest result for them and then get out of the way. So uh, one way that we do business differently is we, we do one price on every car. And I don't know if we talked about this, Dennis, but um, one price on every car upfront, our best price, then that's it. So we've already discounted the car to our very best price. You see a lot of people doing this nowadays. It's probably like still under 5% of the whole market. Everybody would still negotiate, but we, we price them for what they're worth ahead of time. Like we look right now at what it's worth and it's not going to be worth something different because you're here tonight and you're willing to buy it right now for 400 bucks less. It's still worth what it's worth. And if you don't buy it, we feel we'll sell it at that price in the next few days. Anyway, it's not about you. It's about the market. And people respond well to that. They like it. Then we're on the same side when you're buying your car. It's not you versus me. So we talk a lot about treating the guests with respect, 
and, you know, just having that upfront, honest, you know, philosophy disclosure with them so that they have a good experience rather than fighting you about the hidden costs and the man behind the curtain and all that stuff. Well, so there, that there's, there's lots to unpack there because that that's an entire system that's built on a lot of, you know, trust, as you had said, there's a lot of, you know, implied um, understandings of how a employee should conduct themselves, what, what, how you should be interpret, in, interpreting the data, all of that stuff. Let, let's go back to the, the building block of trust. And this might be a little bit more, maybe too elementary, but I, I, I'm actually curious to see how this plays out with you. And first off, were, because you were a sprinter back in college, were you a part of a relay team? Yeah. Okay. So if you think back to your relay teams, if you had to identify how it is that you trusted your teammates in competition to come through for you, how did you, how did you look to build that trust or how did you know that, okay, these are my guys. I trust them. When you were at that, you know, when you're at the big West championships and you're ready to compete as a team, Obviously, there's a lot that went through to get to that point. And at some point, you're like, these are my guys. I trust them. How did you get to that point? Well, in swimming back in college, it was by waking up at five o'clock every morning with them to go swim and showing up at workout, no matter how you felt, how tired you were, how worn down you were. And you're there together grinding it, you know, grinding it away. We would say gauchos beat gauchos. So our goal was, you know, if I don't win, I want you to win. Like, like if I'm going to lose, I want it to be to you. So you build that trust by, you know, going to those, you know, six, seven, eight, nine workouts per week with your team, you know, nine per week during the, the peak of training um, and just being with the team, not sleeping in, not bailing out, not, you know, being lazy and not showing up and flaking, you know, putting your all in the weight room, like all those things. So actually, it's funny you bring up the relay thing. People would have their best times on relays and not just because you get a rolling start in swimming and you can swing your arms. It's because the energy with the team, because of the expectation and because you're doing it for a cause greater than yourself, you would perform better. So we had that trust. And I think that correlating that over to what we do, um, selling cars the way we do, there's a, it's a cause greater than ourselves. It's not, hey, I'm here to make as much money as possible. Like, how do you get behind that? Like, how do you, hey, great, that's cool. So are we ripping people off to do that? Like, I don't know how we're doing that. Hey, we're here to provide the best experience they can to buy a car, like for what it's worth. They're going to get a fair deal and they're going to have a great experience and we're going to be upfront transparent. And whether the lady is 85 years old or if the guy is 17 years old, it doesn't matter. They get the same price. It's not based on their negotiation skills. It's based on what the car's worth. And with, you know, transparency in pricing with the internet and everything now, it, it's almost insane that people don't do this, but I think they hold out on this idea because they want to make the pounder deal on the super aloof customer that comes in one out of 10 times. They want to take advantage of that person. And I think that it's a noble cause that we don't take advantage of those people. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, the industry is still changing. Um, it's not... Uh... I don't see that it's fully there yet in terms of, you know, everyone moving and everyone adopting and accepting the one price strategy yet, but it's certainly way further along than what it was 10 years ago and even 20 years ago. And I, I do think that there's more consumers, more buyers that are open to that than ever before. Uh, it, it will be interesting though, at some point, again, I mean, this, this, 
this could be an issue for franchise law here, Doug, where it's like, look, if, if all of a sudden the franchise is the same price as basically what the automaker is, what now is the need for the franchiser? Again, that might be we might be dead at that point when they have that conversation. But certainly when you get to kind of this flat price type mentality, one price mentality, you you, you start to remove things along that supply chain because they're just not needed. Right. It's kind of the same thing of, of when you're managing people and you're managing your business, you're looking at managing expenses. What are some of the expenses that you can cut along the way for the short term? Again, it won't happen in our time, Doug, but it definitely could be the end result of moving more towards this one price. Yeah, I think you're right. But I, I also think that one, one way that I don't know how, I don't know how I would do it any other way. When I left corporate, I went to work for Brad Barnett. He's my mentor. He runs Toyota Walnut Creek. That's where I worked right before this. And, and he sort of began the one price model back in 2005. And over time, he's perfected it with different ways to, to price the cars. But I think the key here is how you price them. It's not that the manufacturer gives you a price you sell it for. You can still decide the price. The only difference is you decide it in the morning when you get here. You're like, what are we going to price them for? What are they worth? You do it before you meet the person rather than after. And you know, yesterday someone said, hey, did we change the price on Camry hybrids? I said, yes, I changed them this morning. They're like, oh, this guy was going to buy one anyway. I'm like, give him the price. We lowered the price. Like, I'm still happy to lower the price. That's what it is. So, but I think that the key here is you have to have a lot of trust that you can adapt the pricing to a market-based price. But I personally have more faith in our ability to adjust the price with a clear head coming out of a weekend sales event or going into a weekend. than I trust my managers at Saturday at 205 when they only have two cars out. I think they're going to make some pretty bad decisions at 205 with no cars out, right? And and that tends to happen. <laughs> I'm telling you, so that's why I love the model. Like I think it's I think it's brilliant. So I think the only thing you miss out on is the profit opportunity off of, you know, benefiting off of someone that doesn't know any better, but I don't think that's a real noble thing to do anyway. So I'm okay not making that profit and having this trend, like this do the right thing mentality that everybody can rally behind and you would just attract better people to work at your establishment. Yeah, I I mean I I would agree that this is this is definitely the the easier, better way forward in moving more towards a market-based strategy. Uh, I, I think that especially with more operators of businesses, I'm going to just generalize it, not specifically like dealer operators, but just any operator of a business, because there is a greater knowledge of data science and how to how to look at data, how to understand data, that you are going to see the rise of the operator. And essentially the the rise of the operator is really going to be the differentiating point between who's running a good business and who's running a not so good business. That operator needs to be able to understand everything about their business to build a team, to know the profit and losses, to know the different uh, market pricing, to put that all together. It's just it obviously that's very tough, which is why it's interesting to then talk to you about this stuff as a student athlete, because I know that all, many student athletes are closer to this idea of building a team and winning than other college students, for instance. I mean, you would have to let's say be in a, on a research team and and not even not everyone does, you know, gets on that research team. So, but there's just many, many student athletes that are used to working in a team, to knowing what it's like to be successful. And then so to hear from your eyes, how you have kind of used your student athlete experience and incorporate it now into managing. And 
you know, ensuring that, of course, you're not going to have everyone wake up to the hours of a service advisor, but, you know, knowing that everyone's there to serve something greater than themselves. Again, that's that kind of unifying bond that builds trust. Completely agree. Okay. So, all right. So let's see if we can help out some additional, I mean, I guess we've, we've already talked about you wanting to seek out or if a student, a student athlete seeks you out to get into a, a car at Toyota Marin. So there's one avenue to benefit a student athlete. Let's talk about student athletes get involved in the business. You got involved uh, through the Toyota Management and Training Program. Can you share with us what are some other avenues for college student athletes to get involved in the automotive industry at large? Yeah, well, I think that if you're a STEM major or you're an engineer or something, there's obviously the manufacturing side that you could go and design cars. And there's between, you know, Ford and the big three, you know, GM, you know, you could do all that stuff in Michigan. But I think for, for people that are more, you know, arts major, you know, Bachelor of Arts of some type and you kind of you're an athlete first, not sure what you want to do. Um, I think there's a ton of opportunity um, to get involved with a, a third party vendor or an OEM like I did, like with Toyota corporate, where basically you become a factory rep and you call on dealers. And then you learn this whole world of, wow, there's lots of vendors that work with dealers. I mean, we probably have 400 vendors we work with here at Toyota Marin. So you could work for any number of those companies. No, get out of here. Yeah, seriously. We're closing <laughs> the month right now. I'm telling you, it's crazy. So but you you actually have a pretty good mix of sales and with people business type stuff where you're interacting with other people and you're you're getting paid a little bit more than you would for not being a revenue producing person because you're called let's say you're an auto trader rep and you go and you're kind of you're selling auto trader services to dealers well, look, I'm going to spend a bunch of money with Auto Trader anyway. Like your dealers are going to spend money with you. Maybe you would lose a little bit of your compensation if you have a bunch of dealers leave you, but that may or may not be inside or outside of your own control. So it could be a really soft approach to getting into a sales type environment where you're you're selling something, but you're not you're not live and die on commission only. And that's kind of where you begin when you're at the car business on the retail side and you're selling cars. It feels a little more intimidating because it is heavily commission based. So if you're coming and you're looking for, you know, you just graduated and your parents are like, well, well, where'd you get a job? And you're like, oh, well, I'm getting minimum wage to sell cars. They're thinking, why did you do that? Well, because the average salesperson there makes $12,000 a month. That's pretty good, right? I mean, 150 grand, that'd be pretty sweet. Well, you gotta, you know, if you're going down that road, you gotta focus on achieving what needs to be done and then the income will follow. So there's these two avenues of being a purely revenue producing person that gets paid entirely off commission versus going a little softer road and working for an OEM or a third party vendor with a little more stability, but the financial upside will be a little bit more capped in the short term. Cool. Thank you for that. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I hope that uh, if, if there are student athletes out there listening to this and you, look, I've spoken about this before listeners, that's the economy is going to be a, you know, it's going to be a long time before we see a lot of big growth. So it's going to be a very slow growing economy. Even if you are a sophomore in college and you're looking to, you know, get a job right out of college, make sure you're employable, you know, two years from now, we still may be in this slower economic uh, growth period. So therefore you need to start looking at different avenues, certainly working in the car business can make you money pretty immediately if you're on the commission side, or you can start going the management and training side as, as Doug here did. 
I mean, Doug, if if you had to recruit student athletes to your store right now, what's what's your pitch to them? My pitch to them, and you know, when, when I spoke with you, I said, hey, if, if you had told me that I could be 22 years old, graduating college, and you told me that I could be 36 years old and the general manager of a dealership, I would have said, sign me up. Like, what do I got to do to make it happen? Um, so, but in between, there's a lot that goes into that. But in, in the car business, it's one of the only it's one of the only businesses out there where you can start at the bottom and make it all the way to the top still. It's like the, the pure American dream. So depending on what your motivations are and what you want to do, I mean, it, it's an incredibly vibrant and fun business to be in. So, you know, the hours aren't great, quote unquote, for retail automotive when you're first starting, you know, you're working on the weekend. So, so those, you know, student athletes are thinking, Ooh, I don't know if I want to work on the weekend. Well, it depends on your lifestyle. Maybe you do. You may want to do that. And you may find that you really like being at work. Like I love being here. It's great. You know, when I had to work on the weekend, I loved it. Saturday was like the Super Bowl every Saturday. It's the busiest day of the week. It goes by super fast. Um, but you can make so much money too. So there's the economic benefit. You know, my wife was a, was a teacher and she's like, I don't know. Why was I a teacher? Like if I had known how much money people make selling cars, why on earth would I have ever become a teacher? So, and she was a student athlete as well. She was on the track team at UC Santa Barbara. So, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, so Doug, maybe just a couple more questions here and maybe a little bit off topic. I mean, I think that actually there, there's one more maybe quote unquote business related topic I want to ask you. Then I want to, you know, ask you a couple other things that are a little bit more like, tell me more about Doug and his student athlete life. So, Doug, I found you through Amit Chandorana and you impressed upon me that you are a person that held holds steady in your values, that you're you're definitely willing to learn and listen, but at the same time, you you, you kind of have some stuff figured out already. And therefore, you're also not shy to share your opinions on things. I was curious on your end, as as a GM of a store, there are many different content creators and influencers out there that, you know, like to give car buying advice. There's a couple YouTubers that I, I, I even follow that, that do a lot of this stuff. I see some of the stuff. I, I listen to it and I still think, well, they're, they're definitely not talking about the one price strategy at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, tell me either your thoughts or what would you say to them for, in, in the way that they're still painting the, the car business? Well, I, I still deal with this with a lot of my friends, especially the ones in Southern California where I can't directly help them. Although a lot of them just come up here and buy a car from here. But when I talk to them about it, I'm like, well, depends what you want, man. Like, do you want to, like, you make a decent amount of money. Do you want to work for 18 hours trying to get the best deal to save 400 bucks buying a car? Like, if that's super important to you, go for it. And, you know, send a lead to every dealer in the area, talk to them. You're going to be super frustrated. The one that gives you the lowest price probably doesn't have the car anyway. They're probably preloading it with unnecessary aftermarket accessories that they don't tell you about until you drive 45 minutes away to get to the dealership. Basically, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. So I think there's, I would say about 10% of the buying public wants to get the best deal on earth. And they would they would probably you know, step over their grandma to say 50 bucks. And so if you're one of those people 
then you probably are going to go to great lengths to work online and grind people down and all this other stuff. But, um, but, but, but aren't most of us like that? I mean, you had just kind of shared that your friends contact you from they, Southern California. They, so, so here's where I, I feel, I personally believe 10% of the people, they really truly want that. They want the lowest. They want to tell all their friends they paid the least. I think that 80% of the people just want to make sure that they don't leave and, and, and think I just got screwed. I just got taken right. advantage of, you know, and one of the guys that I swim with, he bought a car from us um, about six months ago. And I'm like, Hey, how was it? He's like, it was great, man. He's like, you know, when I got home, I didn't have that feeling that I usually have, you know, the feeling of, did they just screw me? Like, did that just happen? Like, that's what people don't want to feel. So uh, to, to the extent that you can get that experience is really hard to say how you could or couldn't. I know when I worked at the manufacturer, we would shutter to give a referral to our friends or family. We would have to call the owner of the dealership and say, please help them out. So we were afraid to send people to the dealership ourselves. So I think what it comes down to, it's one of the most primitive human elements. It's, do you like your salesperson? Are they credible? Are they calling you back? Are they providing the information you need? Because if they are, and if you're sitting here about to buy a car from our dealership with a person who's treated you nice with respect, they've, they've dealer traded for the right color and equipment for the car, you spend three hours with them. If, you, if I told you you could save 300 bucks if you go drive to San Jose, you know, an hour away from here, would you do it? I think most people wouldn't. But I think what they, they want to know is, that am I talking about 300 bucks or 3,000? Because if it's 3,000, then I right. would go there. So I think that just doing your due diligence, I would say probably get quotes from two, three, four dealers. And kind of like if you're doing contracting work at your house, if one of them is way lower, like you should probably be wondering why. It may not be what they're representing. If the other three are pretty close, I would go with the one that's you know closest to your house and most reasonable. And I think you won't go wrong there. The analogy to the contractor is uh, very well understood, at least by me. I, I do enjoy woodworking, and so working with contractors in general, absolutely. It's it's no longer just about the 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 labor price or the total cost. It's now okay. What does that get me? And now let's even dive a little more into the details. Okay, but you know, what, where, where's the material come from? What what kind of material? And yeah, you start to talk a little bit more in detail. It's significant because you're going to spend two, three, four hours transacting on the car. Do you want that to be the worst two, three, four hours of your life because you thought you're getting a great deal? Or do you want to feel comfortable with the person and feel like, wow, I feel like they took care of me. They're trying to make a living. They helped me. They provided a service just like that. I'm sure you'd be willing to pay a little more for your woodwork than you would, you know, if the person's treating you right with respect, giving you all the information than just the cheapest person that you're having an awful experience and you don't know what the product's going to be. So that, that would be my, my, my feedback to the listeners out there. Kudos, kudos. Okay. All right. So to end our episode here, to end our recording, Doug, and again, thank you for being on. It's it's super great to hear from a former student athlete and how your student athlete days still are with you tonight, you know, today. Um, and so again, thank you. It, it was, it was, it's, it's been great. I actually want to, you know, because I know a little bit of, about student athlete life and, you know, you had mentioned the parties and look, you went to Santa Barbara. I mean, that's, it's not exactly like the good old Catholic school of St. Mary's <laughs> college, you know, but uh, you know, so it entertain us. I mean, what can you, can you share as rated G or R as you wanted some of the experiences and stories of you being a student athlete in UC Santa Barbara? Well, we had a very strong uh, tradition and culture 
on the swim team of every year doing, you know, some initiation activities with everyone. So we did that and it was for 30, 40 years. So you talk to people, there's, it goes back. So we had, when you referenced the team earlier about a fraternity of sorority, I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about here now. Yeah. And it, it kind of bonds people together, but it also creates a little bit of humility in the freshmen, you know, and it's not to be, it's nothing super excessive or anything, but you know, it does involve a little bit of warm steel reserve and a little bit of, you know, going to the beach in the middle of the night and doing push-ups and sit-ups. So, you know, some pretty crazy stuff, but, um, but, it, but that type of thing builds camaraderie and a culture of belonging. So I think that, you know, to the extent we did it back then and where that can relate to business, if you can get people to feel like they're a part of something, I think that that strengthens the, the, the bond and the community feeling that you have. And that you can do that in business just like you can, you know, on a swim team or fraternity, whatever, back in college. You know, that's probably the best pitch for UC Santa Barbara that uh, you will ever hear right there. <laughs> yeah, the best. Ole, 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 ole. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. Well, Doug, thanks for being on the show, man. I appreciate your time. Uh, listeners, as we end every episode, cheers. Prost, l'chaim, kipis, nastaravi, salut, kampai, mabu, tutsins, gambe, yamas, nastarovie, vo, salute, and saudi to the customer experience. Thanks, Dennis. Business class listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. Wisco Weekly is proudly supported by Automotive Mastermind. Automotive Mastermind is the leading predictive analytics and marketing automation company in the automotive space. To learn more about Automotive Mastermind, visit them at automotivemastermind.com. Automotivemastermind.com. And business class listeners, if you want to hear more exclusive content, get some bonus episodes of the show, consider becoming a paid subscriber on Apple Podcasts. It's $8 a month. $8 a month will get you all the personal and professional development that you will need to get you jacked up to do your job. It'll keep you focused. It'll keep you learning. It'll help you navigate this new economy because this new economy is not your father's economy. Thanks for tuning in.